1: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton.
2: Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Populism hits the financial markets. Is it a fluke, or does it point to something deeper? This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week, I'm David Weston. A video game store is at the heart of a titanic struggle between short sellers and retail investors. Until recently, GameStop was a company whose time seemed to have passed, with serious gamers turning to the internet, not the mall, to get their games. But then, social media got involved, starting a meteoric rise in GameStop stock after Reddit's Wall Street Bets forum started pumping the stock to its 3 million users, the army of social media empowered day traders catapulted the former small caps market value beyond those of even members of the S&P 500. Here's Bob Prince, the co-CIO of Bridgewater Associates.
3: It just reflects the liquidity that exists and the new players in the markets. You know, historically it's indicative of a bubble type environment, but you know, it can go for a long
1: time. The amateur day traders were targeting short positions held by Gabe Plotkin's Melvin Capital and Andrew Left's Citroen Research. Hedge fund Titans Ken Griffin and Steve Cohen injected a total of two and three quarters billion dollars into Melvin Capital amid the short squeeze distress. Here's the founder of S3 Partners, Bob Sloan.
2: What's happening is that the retail right now is stronger, but yeah. the short bets come back and fill in. So it's it's just a battle that's going to continue.
1: Within a matter of days, the Reddit army had pushed the rally so high that Melvin Capital and Citroen threw in the towel on their short positions. I'm just fine. Citroen Capital is just fine. Cover the majority of the short in the 90s, add a loss 100%, have a small imaginable position, and I'll let it go. That Citron Research founder Andrew left the Reddit army of day traders also boosted other has-beens, including BlackBerry, Retailer Express, and AMC, which is fighting to stave off bankruptcy. Hedge funds are now on the hunt for other companies that could end up on the Reddit mob's radar. Here's Dennis Gartman. But this has wider implications yeah. for the for the near term. I think that this uh, I think you're going to see a number of hedge funds declare bankruptcy in the several, next several days. Online brokerages reported service disruptions caused by the retail trading frenzy. And a number of them, including Robinhood, took the rare step of limiting some transactions on shares of GameStop, AMC, and others. You're witnessing
3: the French revolution of finance where the proletariat is rising up to change the order structure in finance. And they're able to do that because they have costless data, they have costless trading.
1: That's Skybridge Capital founder, Anthony Scaramucci. There has been a surge in overall retail trading activity as people stuck at home tried their hands at trading. According to Bloomberg Intelligence, individual investors accounted for almost 20% of the trading volume in 2020. Here's Eileen Burbridge, partner at Passion Capital Investments.
4: The fact that retail investors are going to be able to communicate with one another that they can actually consolidate their buying power in such a way and provide research data points for these larger institutional investors is something I don't think the regulars would have anticipated even three
3: years ago.
1: So what caused the perfect storm that some call GameStop? We asked Peter Atwater, president of Financial Insights, and he said it was something that had been in the works for some time.
3: So what we've seen over the past couple of years have been these flash mobs with money, as I call them, where investors, particularly using social media, get together and uh, you know aim at a single um, company. You saw this with Tilray, Beyond Meat, you, just one after the other. And what we've started to see is they move from moving shares to buying options to now buying options and things that are you know most shorted. And to me, this just reflects on the. the the confidence of the crowd they've they've gotten much more strident much more aggressive and and honestly they've succeeded at it so so behaviorally this looks very very predictable and it's coming to a head
1: at the same time was there a reduction in the barriers to entry if i can put it that way that it's easier for retail traders to get into things like call options i mean there was a time that required some sophistication you have to go through brokers and things like that now i think you can do it online can't you
3: Sure, I mean the, the technology has moved with the crowd. But I mean let let's be honest. This this has been going on for a long time. You you go back and you read financial history and they talk about, you know, the, the telegraphs suddenly causing, you know, the market to move more quickly. This is this is the same thing but in, in a twenty twenty one version. People are using, you know, accounts online with their iPhones, and are trading call options. We've taken it to an extreme.
1: Let's talk about regulation, because there's various discussion about whether the SEC or someone else should be getting involved. Does this potentially lie afoul of what's going on with the SEC in terms of existing regulation?
3: I, I don't know if it runs afoul or not, but as a researcher, I have found that regulators, when they act, react to sentiment. And so I expect that if sentiment becomes too extreme, people become concerned about systemic safety, then you'll see the regulators move in and force. And and you know that that's what they do. They they will close the barn doors. At at the moment that the the animals have already left, they're going to pour water on a fire that was already extinguishing
1: on its own. And and the question, at least in my mind, I think in many people's minds, is do existing regulations really address this? I mean, people have talked about, like, pump and dump. Certainly there are regulations about that. We really talk a stock stock up so you can sell it. Or does there need to be a whole new regulatory approach to this, if any at all?
3: No, I expect the regulators will respond to this you know, after the fact with, with regulations that try to modernize um, you know, and, and, and reflect truly what's in place today. But, but I would think about it almost like Sarbanes-Oxley. It will come well after the crowd has dispersed.
1: That was Peter Atwater, president of Financial Insights and lecturer in economics at William & Mary. Coming up, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan on the rise of retail investors and what it means
0: for the markets. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Brian Moynihan, during his time as chairman and CEO of Bank of America, has emphasized the strategy of responsible growth. What went on with GameStop this week seems like just the opposite of that, as some would say, was the earlier parabolic increase in Bitcoin. But Brian says that it's not a problem with the democratization of finance. The forces are larger than that.
4: Uh, It's already been pretty democratized. We, We everybody talked about free trading. I think somewhere in like 2007 or, or something like that, I, I was riding around Manhattan on a, a double-decker bus with free trading on the side side of it uh, from Bank of America. This is not a new concept. And so, you know, we, we've seen 30% growth in in our uh, balances for our, in our Merrill Edge, which is our more affluent segment. We've seen a net growth of 10%, I think, in, in uh, uh, what you call sort of digital brokerage accounts and stuff. And so it's it's good people are investing. I think people have to be careful and we all know that, but I think if you look at it overall, if you look longer term, what what are the themes in financial services? More and more digital. We saw, we're now up to 80% of our direct consumer loans done digitally up from the start three years ago. Uh, more and more digital, more and more demand for, I want digital and I want high touch. I want the branches and I want the digital. More and more, uh, Artificial intelligence applied more and more operational excellence across all our platforms in terms of process engineering and taking out paper and putting in digital work. Those are the themes that are just going to be tremendous. Artificial intelligence, distributed networks, um, data information movement, you know, all those things are incredibly important. But those themes have been with us. Now the question is, we may have made a step change, and we'll be after that. So, yes, investors. Yes. Uh, borrowers, yes, everything, but it, it's really the digital, it's the new news, not as much as the in underlying uh, asset cost.
1: So one more try at maybe a change in the landscape, and that is China. One of your competitors, Jamie Dimon over at J.P. Morgan, says he's worried about the Chinese banks getting so big. Do you see that as a potential risk for Bank of America?
4: We're not worried about them getting big, they are big. And so you know, they, they earn a lot of money, they're already very sizable institutions, the, the market in some ways is much more consolidated in the hands of the four, five, seven major banks. If you look at the top Ten, you know, earning banks. You know, JP and ourselves will be there, and, and 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 quickly, it's all Chinese banks. I think the first nine, other than the two of us, if I remember right, it's they're powerful, strong companies to have the right to operate in the United States. They already have you know, capabilities in the United States and other countries, and and I, I don't know when they'll decide, but if they decide to come outside that country, they are big, powerful organizations, earning forty billion dollars a year, or three trillion dollars in assets, and and their own, you know. 50, 60, whatever percent by the government, so they have the support to go out and drive. So, yes, we all have to be fearful of them. We actually had a stake in one for a long time called CCB and helped them improve their operations based on the most modern things, and they took it and took off with it and did a great job. And so we all have a right to be uh, fearful of them, but not because they're going to be big. They are big. Now the question is, what are they going to
1: do? Are you concerned that, in fact, because of the liquidity that's been injected for good and sufficient reason to help the economy, that we really are risking ourselves in some places? And I'll give you two examples. Bitcoin, goodness knows, has gone all over the place. And another GameStop right now that is really quite a phenomenon, and it's not the only one right now that's really getting bid way up. Should we be concerned that maybe this is an indication that maybe we're getting a little bit out over our skis? Those
4: issues, at the moment, happen at time, you know, in the ebbs and flows in the market. And then, frankly, I don't have great insight as to uh, those things, uh, we've been clear about how we stand on Bitcoin and uh, versus blockchain, which is a technology and stuff. But let me, let me back up. And, and, and the question is, when you look at the economy, and it's about as big as it was in 2018, the projections from our team are for it to grow up 5% this year, in 21. Um, in 2018, in the, in the second quarter, was the economy was this big. It was projected to grow at like one5 to 2%. And the interest rate environment was 100 to 150 basis points higher and there wasn't all this, uh, so there wasn't interest rate accommodation, and it wasn't fiscal stimulus out there. Now you have the same thing. So the fiscal stimulus is needed to help people make it across the river here. You have 6% plus unemployment. You have these companies that haven't opened. That's the PPP program. You have holes in state budgets and, and that were created by the cost of paying for all this work, and maybe tax r- loss revenues and stuff. Those ought to be dealt with. And I think if we deal with that responsibly then what happens but the possibility of overshooting here is real and that's what you're hearing less about the equity trading values at the moment but more about the question when rates are at one percent and are going to stay there for a long time it'll lead to risk and that could lead to bubbles but the real question that will be fundamentally bad for everybody is if if we miss the inflation turn and it's not there now but that's one of the challenges that you know every the, the, Chair Powell and his colleagues have is to, is to really be watching this thing, and they need to make sure this great economy grows again at the right rate and above that right rate, and there's some inflation in order to make sure it doesn't go backwards. But on the other hand, there, it's going to be an interesting, you know, as we move through the end of this year and the next year when this has all come true, the vaccines out and stuff, it, it'll be interesting to see how they play through that.
1: Well, exactly. Let's pursue that just for a moment, because uh, there's been a lot of money given to a lot of people, again, for good and sufficient reason. They've needed it. But the indications are a lot of it's getting saved. It's not getting spent in part because they don't have a place to spend it, frankly, because a lot of the economy shut down. Uh, how concerned are you as you look at the economy? Because you have a real vantage point into the economy broadly. How concerned are you that there might be a snapback that might actually trigger, believe it or not, inflation? We haven't talked about it in a long time.
4: Well, there's been I mean, it's kind of interesting if you trace last year. And we'll see with the fourth quarter you know, all ends up final. But if you think about down 30, up 30, and up a few percentage, you have know, three or four percentage points or whatever it turns out to be. And in this quarter, the projections are it may come down closer to flat. And that has a little bit to do with the first quarter. But if you actually then pull that apart and look at our, our consumer, uh, what we call consumer spending. And so... Debit and credit card spending is one thing, but this is around, you know, people taking money out of ATMs and spending it, writing checks for services, uh, P2P, the Zelle product, which is huge right now. Um, If you look at that spending through the first 23 days of January, it's up eight or 9% over last year's first 23 days of January, which was up 9% over the year before. So it is bigger in dollar amount. It is growing faster than it grew from, from 18 to 19 and as fast as 19 to 20, if you look at the type of customer, obviously for the people who are unemployed and you can see them receiving unemployment benefits, they're using the money faster. If you look at the rest of the customers, they're using a discretionary retail, not uh, sustenance retail. You know, so they, they, they're paying for their food because they're employed. And so I think these stimulus uh, dollars can be spent much more precise than I think the last case was a good one, and that it went unemployment to the unemployment, some supplement there, the $600 under 75000 are those are good items, and future stimulus ought to be likewise geared, because otherwise it gets diminishing returns, and then you have the issue of how you pay for it long term, and the issue of whether it creates inflation, but there's a lot of pent-up savings, and we'd expect a good second half of the year. Now, it's just the mistake everybody makes is they get talking about all the economics, and they forget there's one simple question, which is we have to win the war on the virus. And right now we're going in with a much better situation from the fight in that we have this vaccine and this vaccine's going into people's arms. And that then changes the course of this. And yet
1: that's still out there, but that's a light in a tunnel that wasn't here this year, you know, last year in the summer. That was Brian Moynihan, chairman and CEO of Bank of America. Coming up, working from home once seemed to be the bold new innovation. But now for many, the question is, when can I come back to work? That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg
0: Radio.
1: Wall Street has joined so many others in figuring out how to work from home efficiently and effectively. But the appreciation for all that added flexibility just may be wearing off.
4: You know, we we have 10, 12 percent back. We were bringing some people back when the case count fell The problem is, is that, you know, then the Thanksgiving came, Christmas came, the whole thing sort of exploded again. So we stopped all those initiatives. But that was volunteer. You can come back.
1: We weren't telling anybody to come back, but a lot of people want to come back. That was Brian Moynihan, chairman and CEO of Bank of America. Related Companies is the largest landlord in New York City and one of the most important real estate developers in the entire country. And we asked its CEO, Jeff Blau, what it's going to take to get people back into the office in New York.
2: The two obvious answer, answers are vaccine rollout, um, but probably even more critical right now is testing. Um, you know, we all thought after New Year's that everyone would would return right back to the office. But in an interesting twist, I, I have a feeling that the vaccine announcement and the closeness of it has really enabled companies to just say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just wait. It's so close. I'm not going to pull everyone back to the office yet. You know, unfortunately, in New York... Um, you know, office actual occupancy, people showing up for, at their desk every day is under 10%. Um, and it's, it's critical that we kind of really push testing, make people feel safe and comfortable uh, until they ultimately do get the vaccine. So people come back to the office. If people don't come back to the office, New York cannot recover. And that's really, that's really the sad thing that's happening now. Our restaurants are closing, small businesses are closing. And, and just if you walk around Midtown, people aren't here. And so it is critical. Um, I do think that uh, the rapid test is getting uh, cheaper and more effective, and so that will help. But um, I think it's, it's going to be slow going until kind of a real vaccine rollout.
1: What can people, companies that own and or manage these properties do to expedite that? I mean, for example, does it make sense for them to put rapid testing in, into their own buildings? So uh,
2: in, in partnership with the governor, uh, Governor Cuomo here in New York, uh, what we've done and what he really put out was every building, um, well, he, he wants to create in effect COVID safe buildings. Um, and so for example, what we've done here at Hudson Yards is in partnership with Mount Sinai, we've created a testing center. So every one of our tenants has access to this testing center uh, or they can come onto uh, an employee's employer's own its premises. So that's what we do here at Related. So every week Mount Sinai comes in and every single employee gets tested once a week. Um, and in the buildings, any guest that wants to come into the building goes through a rapid test program. And so those two things will enable us to call this a, a COVID safe place. Um, and so we, we managing, uh, we're we managing it that way. And I think more uh, the more people can do that and roll out uh, that type of testing protocol, I think people will feel safer and more comfortable about coming back to work. And that's really what it's going to take.
1: One of the things we're very conscious of in New York, obviously, are the financial organizations. Uh, do you have a sense of companies in, in, in Wall Street, how eager they are to get their people back in?
2: You know, I'd say it varies. I mean, I'm sure you've heard uh, David Solomon really encouraging uh, at Goldman to uh, encourage his employees to get back. He had a very uh, funny quote. He, he kind of said, well, sure, you guys all want to work home from your living room and you can do that. Um, until your competitor shows up in person and wins an assignment you guys need to get back to the office right so i do think that there is pressure um the market will ultimately bring pressure for people to come back you know it's interesting you hear a lot about uh tech tenants or ceos saying i'm gonna let my employees just work from home till june or december or, or forever in some cases um and yet behind the scenes, when you talk to them, and I, I, I spent a lot of my time doing exactly that, really trying to understand what their plans are, they realize that this doesn't work from a long-term perspective. They realize that culture is not does not work, it is not created over Zoom. Interactions happen in the hallway, and you bump into each other. I know certainly here at Related, that's how we work. It's a little bit less formal. And our best meetings just occur when you walk down the hall and see somebody, and it's, it's hard to, to create that on, on Zoom. You can't schedule that interaction. How do you, how do you train new people? You, know, uh, you, you have an incoming class of analysts. Uh, Goldman has 2,500 new analysts come in. And what are they supposed to do on Zoom? So I, I ultimately do think, um, I think the long run answer here is that there will be more flexibility in the workplace. Um, I think that employees value the ability to work from home a portion of the time. If you divide a person's day into the bump into a hall, an interactive meeting, and writing an investment memo, which they can do by themselves, maybe there's a way to divide that work up. And the, I'm just using this, the investment memo writing actually happens, you know, on Friday at home. Um, and the rest is, but it also needs to be a coordinated day. Because if you have people randomly showing up and not showing up, then that interaction doesn't happen either. So in speaking to some of the tech companies, that's what I'm hearing as a potential outcome of this. They might be that this group says on Thursday, we're gonna have work from home day, but everybody else, and and it has to be the same day. So then everybody's out. And then the rest of the time, everyone interacts together. So I really do think people want to get back to the office uh, for culture, for training, um, and, and quite honestly, for just socialization.
1: That was Jeff Blau, CEO of Related Companies, at the Bloomberg Year Ahead Summit. Coming up, we wrap up the week, as always, with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard.
0: That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this, it's a higher rate than Robinhood.
2: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg
0: Radio.
1: We wrap up every week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. And this week, we have to get Larry's thoughts on the phenomenon that is GameStop and what it may tell us about the state of our markets, our economy, and maybe our politics more broadly, I should say. Larry, so thank you so much for being with us. Uh, you're a macroeconomist. You're not a day trader that I'm aware of. You're not a short seller that I'm aware of. So I'm not asking about it as a trader, but from a macro perspective, is GameStop, let me put it simply, a fluke or a symptom?
5: I think it's a bit of both. I think it points up uh, that there's a lot of activity in finance and in financial markets that's not necessarily particularly productive were particularly rational and that there's a need for adult supervision uh, sometimes. Uh, I don't think that this is something that's either going to lift the economy up or bring the American economy uh, down, but it does seem like there's more risk uh, than there has to be born in a variety of directions.
1: So that's the question, really. Could this be a canary in the mine shaft? Uh, the the economy is not going to make it or not make it based on GameStop, goodness knows. But it could be an indication, couldn't it, of, of of sort of froth or even more than froth, maybe a bubble. As you know, Chair Powell was asked about that this week.
5: Look, I, I think you've got to be concerned. GameStop is one thing. The uh, ways in which IPOs have popped by a factor of two or three. The... Uh, new financing vehicles associated with some of what's happened in the SPAC sector, certainly not all of what's happened in the SPAC sector. All of this has a slight feeling of 2000 or 1929 uh, in uh, the air. And so I think the idea that we've got a new group of financial regulators coming in who are more committed to regulation than the previous uh, group. I think that's all welcome. Whether that means that markets are in some aggregate sense uh, overvalued, uh, that's not a judgment uh, that I'd be prepared to reach, uh, certainly with confidence, but I certainly think risks are uh, in a uh, two-way direction. But I also uh, think, David, that You got to look at both sides of this. Yes, there is retail fraud. Not everything that's done by short short sellers is especially attractive either. And certainly there have been excesses of the practice of uh, short selling and then trying to disparage. And so there are things that have gone on in the hedge fund uh, community that I think uh, can at least be uh, questioned. Uh, as well, and in general, the activity of some people trying to short and other people trying to uh, squeeze them, and people trying to create bandwagons to the down uh, to the downside. It's a pretty imperfect uh, business, and I don't think anybody can feel entirely comfortable about what's there. I guess the other caution I'd want to put is not all well-intentioned regulation works out well. And you know it turned out that in their early incarnation, certainly circuit breakers ended up exacerbating volatility because people started selling when they were afraid the market might close. In the incarnation that got put in, some of the rules we had on money market funds actually made runs on money market funds more likely not less likely. So indignation and dismay about the status quo may be a necessary condition for new regulation, but it's not a sufficient condition for any kind of regulation. So I think we're going to need the people who are with regulatory responsibility to sit down and consult with all the parties, reflect very carefully on what's happened here and what its lessons are.
1: And it raises the question, does it not, Larry, of whether this is a matter of conduct, of behavior that you want to modify, or whether there's a more structural cause of it. And uh, we've had a lot of easy monetary policy for 12 years or so now. But even more than that, we've had growing income and wealth inequality long before we had the 2008 Great Financial Crisis. How much of this is almost a political expression, rather than a financial expression, of dissatisfaction with the way things are?
5: David, I, I think I would not look to monetary policy or to um, broad political forces around inequality to explain what's happening at GameStop. I think that's more about technology transforming markets and the kind of things that digitalization is permitting in terms of gamifying a lot of uh, market type activities. It's got to do with people's desire for thrills after sitting at home for 12 months uh, with uh, COVID. I wouldn't look to read a macroeconomic moral into GameStop, though who knows about the overall uh, overall level of markets. I certainly do think there are various aspects of conduct, but also aspects of uh, structure. We've just got to Think about when some of the natural inhibitors are uh, lost. Uh, you need to think about other things. When cars could only go 40 miles an hour, there was much less need for speed limits than when cars developed a capacity to go 100 uh, miles an hour. And that's the kind of issue that has presented itself uh, right now. You know, to take a uh, public policy that Wall Street doesn't like, uh, really doesn't like at all, you see the kind of volume in GameStop. And you wonder whether if there was a small transactions tax, even of 10 or 20 basis points on each share traded, whether you wouldn't contain a lot of that and in the process contain a lot of uh, mania. And that's a policy that would disproportionately fall on the affluent, but would tend to be an inhibitor of this kind of activity. And so I think whatever one thought about transactions taxes yesterday, they look a little better as an idea today. That doesn't mean we should rush out and uh, implement them, but I would be more looking to the changes associated with IT as a route here than I would to easy monetary policy, concerned as I am about the long-run consequences of easy monetary policy.
1: Where does this all lead? I mean, this week we had the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez joined together with Ted Cruz, for goodness sakes, to agree there's gotta be a congressional investigation. Where does Washington take something like this?
5: Look, I'd almost be prepared to say that whenever AOC and Ted Cruz agree, they're wrong. And that there's a general principle when a cause attracts the attention of both extremes. You have to worry a lot about that particular uh, cause. And I think the idea that somehow the people who are involved in this are really great social justice warriors, and that this is an occasion to get the man, I don't think is a particularly fruitful way to think about uh, policy. But my guess is that two things are gonna happen. One is this thing's gonna, in some ways, set in its own undoing. There are gonna be some painful lessons learned. People are gonna be more careful about shorts, about shorting, because they got squeezed and routed on the one side. And people who were involved in pushing this stock up to ludicrous levels are probably going to end up losing a lot of money and they're going to learn a lesson from that too. So to some extent, this thing is going to teach its own lessons. And I think the dull work of government, we're not going to have any instant legislation, but we're going to have committees formed to study various aspects of this, to make recommendations that are then considered is actually gonna probably lead us with better financial markets and a better set of rules than the rules we have today.
1: Larry, it's always such a pleasure to deal with you every single week. That is special Wall Street Week contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. The vaccination site, 800 years in the making. As we press forward urgently, impatiently, to get as many people vaccinated as soon as possible, we face a series of hurdles manufacturing doses as fast as we can, testing and approving new vaccines, getting the medicine distributed, covering the last mile, and getting it into people's arms. But of all the problems we face, real estate isn't really one of them. Google the term mass vaccination sites and you get almost one and a half million results. Everything from pharmacies to hospitals to sports arenas. But there's only one that has the highest spire in all of England, the largest cathedral closed the largest cloister, and that is the Cathedral of Salisbury, where, according to legend at least, back in about 1220 or so, a bishop shot an arrow into the air, hit a deer, and where the deer fell is where they built the cathedral. And that cathedral now is a mass vaccination site. And now the chapel of St. Michael the Archangel is filled with refrigerators for the vaccine. The huge nave is full of chairs rather than pews, And that's where the elderly who have been inoculated wait to make sure they have no allergic reaction. Wait while two church organists play soothing music while they wait. You can call it sang-froid. You can call it a stiff upper lip. But as we all wait for the vaccine, we believe will save us. Leave it to the Brits to do it with class. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.